0: If you'd like to turn there, Proverbs 18, we are going to cover two chapters tonight, which is a challenge in the book of Proverbs. As you know, each individual proverb is, is a nugget that, that needs breaking down and studying and looking at and considering. And uh, there are a few of these that will uh, clump together, in fact I'll do that more in chapter 19, uh, pulling some verses from different places because of their similarities and how they, and they work well together to emphasize each other, but um, what a blessing this book is, it's a challenge, I will not kid you, I told Cheryl today, this has been the hardest book so far for me to study, the hardest one. I have enjoyed it thoroughly, but it's been the biggest challenge because you just can't Read an entire, you know, 20 verses, there's a story, talk about it. It's one verse, stop, think. What does this mean? Lord, explain this. And uh, there are times where the wisdom in the book of Proverbs is very simple and obvious. There are other times where you read the verse and you say, What What does this mean? And so, moving through this, we are going to cover two chapters tonight. I encourage you, at any point, if you feel weary, which I cannot imagine, but if you do, If you'll just feel free to to slip to the back, get coffee, get a cup of water, just even go back and stretch and shake yourself a bit and then come back in. Um, We're not going to be here forever, but it's important that we move through these two chapters tonight, and I believe you'll see why. Father, as we study, we ask for a a breath of fresh air, Lord, the fresh air of your Holy Spirit, breathing through us and speaking to us, Lord, we want to hear from you, Jesus. And we want these things not just to be words that go inside, in one ear and out the other. Words that come dribbling out of our heads and and not held fast. We want these words to sink in deep. And we pray, Lord Jesus, for Your revelation. Revelation that doesn't come by the teaching of man, but only by the teaching of Your Spirit. I pray Your Word, Father, will wash us tonight and cleanse us. and. Pray that we would walk out of here, Lord, strengthened, energized, and ever more excited for our walk with Christ, but also to see you, Lord Jesus. So speak to us now, Spirit, in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Proverbs 18, verse 1, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. When a wicked man comes, contempt also comes, and with dishonor comes scorn. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. To show partiality to the wicked is not good, nor to thrust aside the righteous in judgment. A fool's lips bring strife. His mouth calls for blows. (laughs) A fool's mouth is his ruin. And his lips are the snare of his soul. The words of a whisperer like dainty morsels. They go down into the innermost parts of the body. He also who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. In verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower The righteous runs into it and is safe or saved. I want to save these opening ten Proverbs for Sunday morning. And there's a reason why. Um, We're going to be honoring our graduates. I want to share these with all of our graduates. We may have a couple here tonight, but there's some stuff in here our high school and college students especially need to hear. In fact, as I read over and over these first ten verses... Uh, I I realized, at least I saw, two towers. The Two towers of these two verses. The ivory tower of academia is described herein. And the strong tower of the Lord. And we're going to compare and contrast those two on Sunday and consider those things. So let's pick up with verse 11 and continue on. See how quickly we're moving tonight. (laughs) A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own imagination. And this is not extolling the virtue of wealth. Rather, the vacuum of wealth. The key word there in verse 11 is imagination. Listen to it again. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his own imagination. It's like saying I'm a legend in my own mind. (laughs) You know, you can imagine all kinds of things. You can think that your wealth has got you in, wealth has got you in a secure place. It doesn't, as our national and global economy has shown us recently. That riches and wealth are empty. They're empty because they give a false sense of security. You can amass all kinds of wealth, all kinds of savings, have all kinds of money put away, stocks and bonds and, and things tucked away for a rainy day. But my friends, it's a false sense of security. A rich man's wealth is as a high wall in his own imagination. thinks it's secure. He, he thinks this is sound. He thinks this will take care of his needs and his family's needs in days to come. And yet... We know the truth is not so. The Hebrew word, by the way, for imagination there is mesquite. And it means, or is otherwise translated, image or idol. Idol. So you could say, a rich man's wealth is a strong city and like a high wall in his own idolatry. Because idols are empty. Idols do nothing. They have blind eyes. They have hands that cannot help you. They have feet that cannot rush in and save they have stony hearts that do not beat. They don't care. They do nothing for you. Money's the same way. And I'm not saying don't save, and I'm not saying don't be a good steward of what God has given you. But according to this verse, there is an imaginary security when it comes to material wealth. Masquite, image or idol. You know, the only security you can really find is in the Lord, not wealth, not idolatry. Nothing of this world, if you want security, you will find it in Jesus Christ and in Jesus alone. In fact, Jesus was teaching a crowd of people. And a man called out from the crowd and said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Let me read you Jesus' response from Luke chapter 12, verse 15. He said to them, Beware, and be on your guard against every form of greed... For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told him a parable, saying the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul? You have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, you fool. We're not supposed to call each other fools, by the way, but God can do it all He wants. (laughs) You fool this very night. Your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. How can I be rich toward God? toward God we'll talk about that in a few minutes but so much for the high-walled imaginations of wealth see the truth is what James says in James 1.17 every good thing given and every perfect gift is from where it's from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow see that's security every gift every good thing given every perfect thing given is from God If you have anything, it's because He chose, He saw fit to give it to you. And that's security. And trusting in Him for your provision. Trusting Him to bring it together. To make it happen. To care for you. To meet your needs. He'll do it. He will do it. I'm not talking prosperity gospel, and I always like to be sure that you're not mishearing that. I'm saying God will always provide for those who seek first the kingdom and His righteousness. Because as Jesus says, all these things, they'll be added to you. They are not the issue. Provisions, wealth, material goods are not the issue. If you want security, you will find it in the Lord. Now, the next proverb underscores this in another way. Verse 12. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. But humility goes before honor. Remember that? Proverbs 15.33 says the same thing. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. Even humiliation, even humiliation is a good and perfect gift from above. We don't normally think of it that way. You know, it's the shaking the fist thing. It's the getting upset with God when your life is not working out. And he might very well reply, what are you all upset about? I've given you a great gift. Humiliation, this is a great gift? Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful gift. When offered by the Father. What are you talking about, Rick? Look at it this way. In Christ, things don't just happen to me. They happen for me. In Christ Jesus, things don't happen to me. They happen for me. Anything? Yeah. Everything? Yes. Whatever happens in my life, if I am walking in Jesus, happens for me. And it may be hard. As we've talked about, in fact, the last couple of Sundays, not this Sunday, but but the two preceding, we talked about the road of humiliation. And we talked about the road of suffering. And these are things that you don't normally tout as good things. But if they come from the Father, they are good and they are perfect and they are working out in you exactly what needs working out. And the problem with worldly wealth is that it produces a sense of self-sufficiency. Look at what I can do. Look at how hard I've worked. Look at what I've achieved. I can show you the worth of my life, the value of my life in the things that I have accomplished. And so arrogance sets in. But if you want to get to the place of honor, you've got to go through the place of humility, not arrogance. And pride and haughtiness causes us to stumble. So the Lord gives the gift of humiliation. Praise the Lord. (laughs) And He does it so that I can recognize that any honor in my life is from Him. If I am honored, it's because God honors me. Psalm 138, verse 8, David says, The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the works of your hands. You see, whatever my circumstances, for better or for worse, for wealthy or for poor, Jesus is the author of my faith and He's the finisher. Which means He began your faith. He handed it to you. You didn't just one morning wake up on your own and say, You are the Son of the living God. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. See, that's what what Peter said, right? Remember Jesus' response? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This didn't come from you. It came from the Father. Translated another way, blessed are you, Peter. You're not smart enough to have figured that one out on your own. This came from the Lord. Even our faith, He authors our faith. He begins it, starts it off, gets it kicking and rolling. And we grab hold of it and receive it. Say, yes, I do believe. And after he's authored it, he finishes it. So once you've given your life to Jesus, you are in the finishing room. You are in the finishing process. And so whether it's through humility or suffering or all these things we've looked at recently, he's finishing your faith. Praise the Lord. It's a good and perfect gift. Verse 13. He who gives an answer before he hears... It is folly and shame to him. And I think, you know, if not for giving an answer before they heard, there wouldn't be any television sitcoms. (laughs) There wouldn't be any plot lines. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. How many problems would we avoid if we would just shut up and listen? Before jumping to conclusions, I'm terrible at it. I I will confess this to you. If I am working in my office and I hear one of the kids, you know, raise voices, talking back to Cheryl, and Cheryl's trying to get him to do something, there are times I've come bursting out of my office and grounded them for the next two and a half years, <laughs> only to find out there was no problem going on at all. I'll just go back to work. Thanks. You guys take care of the family life out here. Jumping to conclusions, not taking time to find out what's going on, what's really being said. And the point is, listening slows down judgment Mm -hmm. which is a good thing skip down to verse 15 the mind of the prudent acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge, same thing you look for the information just the facts ma'am give me what I need to, let me hear what needs to be heard, first before I jump in and make a judgment, down in verse 17 is a good example of this the first to plead his case seems right Mm -hmm. Until another comes and examines him or or follows up and pleads his case. So the issue again is listening slows down judgment. All three of these axioms, all three of these proverbs relate or express the wisdom of listening before judging. Which by the way is the reason that the Torah law required two or three witnesses before a judgment could be made so that it would slow down the process. So there were no knee-jerk reactions or snap judgments to things. Sin happens where there's a snap judgment. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Deuteronomy 19.15 A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses a matter shall be confirmed. And you know what Jesus did? He took law and He parlayed it right into relationships. He said, This is the way to do relationships. He said in Matthew 18, verse 15, If your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. Go talk to him about it. And then, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Jesus pulls right out of Deuteronomy and says, This is a way to work out problems in your interpersonal relationships. And by the way, if you go to a brother or sister and they're not listening and they're still fighting back against you, you're not to go tell just anybody. He says that you take one or two more so that by the mouth of one or two or two or three witnesses. So the people that you take with you have to have witnessed the problem. they got to be aware of what happened. And then you take them when you sit down together and you try to work it out. Not to prove who's right and who's wrong, but to provide for reconciliation. But it begins by listening. Seek to hear what the other person is saying. What if they're criticizing me? Seek to hear what they're trying to get across. Don't just take offense. Slow down the judgment. A rush to judgments is never wise. It is prudent to slow up Collect the facts, secure witnesses if you need to, and best of all, it gives you time just to wait on the Lord. Verse 14. The spirit of a man can endure his sickness, but as for a broken spirit, who can bear it? Once again, the scripture just nails it. I mean, it goes right to the heart. I can handle being sick. It's not fun. You know, I can handle a broken bone. It's a broken heart that's difficult to deal with. It's when my spirit is hurt. It's, it's when my, I'm emotionally wounded. Physical disease is far easier to handle than emotional distress. Because, and you know this, I'm not telling you anything new, emotional wounds and spiritual brokenness are harder to heal than physical maladies. They take longer. They set people on paths of bitterness and distress and despair. And that's exactly what Solomon's talking about The broken spirit. Who can bear it? What do you do when your spirit has been wounded by someone? How do you handle it when someone's hurt you? Or broken your heart? Or divided a relationship with you? What's your part in it? How do you respond? What's the best way to heal? Jesus. He's a great physician. Amen? What did the great physician do? When he was beaten and spat upon and mocked and hung up on the cross, what did he do?
1: Forgive.
0: He said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. It is the single most personally healing thing you can do. If you forgive, and the, you know the world thinks that forgiveness is about, you know, the other person. It's helping the other person deal with things. So I forgive you. I magnanimously forgive you. And that's supposed to help them. No, forgiveness heals your heart. If you have been wounded by somebody, if you've got someone in your life, and perhaps most of us here do, somebody who's just been a jerk, and you're like, how do I deal with this? You forgive. Because only by forgiving them will you avoid the road of bitterness. Will you find healing in your woundedness? Proverbs 16.24, we talked about Sunday. Pleasant words are a honeycomb sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. And the three most pleasant words I think anyone could speak are, I forgive you. Because those are the three words Jesus spoke into our lives to offer us salvation. Verse 16. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. What does that mean? It means you can buy your way into some circles. It means if you got something to give, you can you can find a way in, you know. The you can you can get into the Oscars if you know somebody and you can buy your way in, pay somebody off, and you can visit the White House, you know. There's a way in. And a lot of people do this. It's kind of the way of the world. This is one of those proverbial observations, you'll see a few tonight, where it's not a right or a wrong, it's just kind of the way it is. People buying their way into circumstances or situations. But, But when God gives gifts, He has a completely different agenda. Listen to the verse again and think about the way the Lord works. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So your gifts, my friends, your gifts make room for you. The gifts that God gives you, when God pours out gifts to His people, it makes room for them to get into places, to have open doors in relationships, to bring the gospel to people who don't know Jesus, to bring ministry to those who do. A man's gift makes room for him. And don't ever forget this. When you consider what your spiritual gifts are, don't ever forget they have been given. See, inherent in a gift, it's not like, well, I'm such a gifted dude. Let me just tell you about all my great gifts. You know, There's no pride in a gift. It's something that's been given to you.
1: Right. Not
0: something you've generated. But here's what's wonderful about that. He knows, God knows, being the giver of the gift, the Holy Spirit knows what gift you'll need, yeah. when you'll need it, and, and, listen, who will be in need of it? I had never really considered this before. I mean, I've thought about the effects of the spiritual gifts and I've thought about functioning in our gifts, but I had not thought about the fact that the Holy Spirit has it so well worked out that not only does He know the perfect gift for you, but He knows the perfect circumstance for you to use that gift in for somebody else. He weaves it all together in marvelous ways. The right gift in the right person at the right time makes room for us. It buys our way in, if you will, with the message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's just amazing. That just tickles me to think how perfect God is and how He works these things out. And He gives us our gifts. Remember why we have gifts in the first place? Two reasons. Number one, as a testimony to the lost. That is reason number one we have any gifts. Testimony of the Gospel to those who are lost. And secondly, as ministry to the body. And I don't see in either one of those... Puffing myself up or thrilling myself with what I've been given. It is always about other people. Amen. God knows what I need, and He knows who will need it. So Paul said to Timothy, as we saw this weekend Kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. Stir up the gift. Well, how do I do that? Well, first of all, if you don't know what the gift is, ask Him. Lord, I'm not sure what my spiritual gifts even are. I've told you before, don't ask me because I have no idea. <laughs> I might make some guesses and probably be wrong. Ask the Lord, what are my gifts? And once you become aware of the spiritual gifts that He is giving you, that He's put in your life, then the next prayer is, how do you want me to use these, Lord? Where do you want me to? To whom do you want me to? Or with whom do you want me to use this gift? Verse 18. We already did verse 17. Verse 18. The cast lot puts an end to strife And decides between the mighty ones. What's that about? Solomon's saying, Red Robin or Olive Garden? Coke or Pepsi? You know? Gym or nap? (laughs) Some decisions that we make are not that big a deal. Listen, some decisions we make are simply not spiritual decisions. What are we going to have for dinner? Burritos or pasta? Not a spiritual decision, just a physical decision. My dad used to always say, and I think it fits this uh, this proverb very well: "It's six of one, half dozen of the other." I'm like, Dad, that's the same number, exactly, son. You know, Solomon is basically saying, if you've got to flip a coin, flip a coin. There are some decisions. It's just not that big a deal. I had a friend named Greg in college. And Greg would not go anywhere, would not do anything without asking the Lord if it was okay. Now, at first, that really blessed me. Because he's one of the first people I met who really sought to walk step by step, decision by decision, with the Lord. But after a while, when you're standing at the soda machine, you're going, okay, Lord, which one is it today? I began to realize that greg couldn 't do anything he was the ability to talk to God had tied him up in knots it became religion and there are some decisions that are just not that big a deal that don 't require birthing prayer you know that don 't require that you nestle down and please don 't misunderstand me i 'm not saying you can 't talk to God about any and everything, even the most insignificant things, but sometimes the most simple solution is the most spiritual one. The most simple solution. What should we do with this? Heads. We'll go there. I'm not talking about deep life decisions and I'm not talking about laying things out before the Lord and trusting the Lord. I'm talking about Solomon being approached by two moms. Remember the story? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Two moms, one baby. There were two moms, two babies, but one of the moms rolled over in the night and smothered her child and went and took the other mom's child and put her dead child in the other mom's crib. So they come before Solomon. They're arguing their case before him. And Solomon says, okay, well, this is a tough one. Who to believe? Who to trust? Bring me my sword. Excuse me? Yeah, my sword. Well, he's probably just... Maybe he died. Why is he going to need a sword? And he says, okay, let's cut this child in two and each mom can have half. And of course you know the story. The mom who really really whose baby it truly was said, No, 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 let her let her have the baby. And of course the other one said, Yeah, cut it in half. If I can't have one, she can't have. And so Solomon knew. And it was a very simple decision. Wisdom. Do you get what I'm saying here that that we, we can get we can get all bound up with super spirituality spiritual living in Christ Jesus is very real mm-hmm. Jesus came down to earth so that those of us who are on the earth can can walk spiritually and still deal with everyday life not be strapped but free mm-hmm. and if you have the slightest sense that you should be praying about something well, by all means you pray about it But who's going to sit in the driver's seat and who's going to sit in the passenger seat as you drive home? Just, you know, flip the coin, okay? Verse 19. Verse 19. A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a citadel. Absolutely true. Just ask Isaac and Ishmael or Jacob and Esau. A brother offended. And I have been in this place where you offend and then you're trying to figure out how do I fix this mess? How do I get into this city, this strong city that is now defensive against everything I try? Isaac, Ishmael, Jacob, and Esau all went through this. And do you realize that the entire reason for terrorism in the world today, the basis for it, lingers on hatred between those four brothers? All that goes back to them, Jews and Arabs. Yep. Jews of the line of Isaac and Jacob. Mm-hmm. And the Arabic people of the line of Ishmael and Esau. Jews and Arabs are all Semitic. They are brothers. But, but a brother offended is harder to be one than a strong city. And so all of history we have just watched this thing play out. Genesis 16, verse 12. The Lord said this about Ishmael. He will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of all his brothers. Does that not describe the Middle East today? How about this one? Genesis 25-23. Rebekah found out she was pregnant, realized she was having twins, And sought the Lord because the two twins were duking it out in her belly. (laughs) She's like, this is, what's going on, Lord? And he said to Rebecca, two nations are in your womb. Think about that, ladies. How would you like to know that you're not just giving birth to twins? You're giving birth to two nations. No wonder I feel so... Anyway. (laughs) Two nations are in your womb and two peoples will be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. And so the strife and the contention, the brothers at each other's throats, even to this point today. And you know, it's because the people I'm most easily offended by are usually the ones that are the most like me. They're the ones that are most annoying. Now, I'm not annoying. (laughs) But people like me are really annoying. You know, have you found that to be true that you're easily ticked off by those people that you're close to or that are similar to you? And so... We ask the question again, what do you do with a brother offended? Same thing you do when you've been hurt emotionally. Forgive. And we start there. In fact, let me give you a couple of practical things to do that have worked in my life in dealing with a brother offended. Number one, you offer forgiveness. And even if they won't hear it, you make sure that in your heart and before the Lord, you have forgiven every offense. But you are not holding anything against them. You forgive, number one. And number two, you look for an opening. You just look for an opening. You don't let it drop, which is what is our tendency. Well, I'm just not going to deal with you at all. Fine, I'll just go about my life. Mm-hmm. And you know what's amazing? Is you really don't just go about your life, do you? They're always in the back of your mind.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You come around the corner and they drive by. You're in the grocery store. said that way, you know. They're always there. They could be in another country, but if there's an offense between you and another person, it's always right there. So, so you look for an opening. I love the story. Perhaps you remember it. 2nd Samuel chapter 5 and 1st Chronicles 11 tell the story. David came up against the city of Jebus. Jebus and it seemed impregnable, this city on a hill, surrounded by valleys to the south and to the east and to the west. And heavily fortified on the north. So there was really no way to attack this this curious city among these mountains, Jebus. And so David challenged his men. He said, all right, I'll tell you what. The first one who can find a way in will be my captain. First one who who can get in there. And he said, I'll give you a hint. The people up there at the top of that mountain, the people in that city, they need to drink. So there's got to be a water tunnel. And that's all David said. Well, He was right. A 75-foot shaft existed that went from that city all the way down to where springs were. Joab shimmied up the shaft. He found a way up there, got into the city, and shafted the Jebusites. He got in. He found a way in. And Joab would, from that point on, be David's captain. That city is Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And that city became then David's capital city. And today continues to be a point of contention between brothers, doesn't it? So what do you do? You forgive and then you look for an opening. You look for an opening for the stronghold. You see, God wants us to take down strongholds. We've been called to that. To bust down strongholds. The strongholds of the enemy and they are strongest when a brother is offended. And so the Lord would say to you and and, and to me, find a way in. There's got to be a tunnel. There's got to be a way. You forgive and then you stay persistent in prayer and you look for the opening to find reconciliation and forgiveness again. Forgive, be patient, look for a way in. Jesus said in Matthew 5.23, If you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, By the way, note that, not that you have something against your brother, but if you remember that your brother has something against you, Jesus says, leave your offering there before the altar and go, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. That's our business. Shimmying up the shaft so that we might find reconciliation. Taking down the strongholds of offense to be reconciled to brothers and sisters. Verse 20 With the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach will be satisfied. He will be satisfied with the product of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. You know, we're going to eat our words. Be they good words or bad words, we will eat our words. If they're pleasant, words of blessing and forgiveness and love, we're going to be filled up with them. Isn't that great? The more you speak pleasant words, the more you are filled with pleasant words. That honeycomb. That good tasting sweet words. If they are curses, we will eat the bitterness that comes with them. Which is why reconciliation is so incredibly important because if we're about cursing people, it's just going to infect us and make us bitter and caustic as people. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Your death and your life As well as bringing life to others and death to others as well. And by the way, this is why the Lord wants us to confess Him. Because death and life are in the power of the tongue. Listen, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, you may be familiar with this. If you confess Jesus with your mouth, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Hallelujah. It's that simple. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. What does that mean? It means faith is conceived in the heart, but it's birthed to life on the tongue. It starts inside, but if you keep it inside, it will end up stillborn. So the Lord says, I want you not only to have a conceived faith, but a spoken faith. Because as you begin to speak it out, isn't that amazing? How the more you talk about Jesus, the stronger your faith gets. And the more you confess Him, the more you grow in belief and in the knowledge of the Lord. Keep getting it out. Just keep getting it out. Verse 22. I like this one. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And obtains favor from the Lord. Doesn't even say he who finds a good wife. Just he who finds a wife. So go get her, you know? Just go find a wife. Doesn't matter if she is. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. I guess any wife will do. You know, God favors marriage, God is pro marriage. And what you need to note there is it's truly a gift from Him. It's a good thing. It's a blessing. So why then, Rick, do so many marriages go bad, even among Christians? If marriage is a blessing, if it's a good thing, if God offers it, why do they go bad? Because, because, listen, a marriage that's gone bad is because husband and wife are not seeking the favor of the Lord. Note the verse again. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. It's a priority problem. In a marriage, God first. Not spouse first. Not job first or anything else first either. But in a a good, strong, growing marriage, God first. Jesus first. I said, when I do marriages, when I do wedding ceremonies, I will always say, you need Jesus at the center. He will hold your marriage together when you two are incapable of doing it. He is the one. So your marriage needs to be based on Him, and centered around Him, and focused, which is why that's why the Bible says don't be unequally yoked. It's not that God doesn't care about people who don't believe in Jesus. Absolutely He cares. He wants them to believe in Jesus and be saved. But he says, don't yoke up, because if you do, how can Jesus be the center of something where only one of you even buys him? Even believes him? If the other one's not believing, then then there's no center to your marriage to hold things where they need to be. It's priority. God first, marriage second, and and then all the rest. You know? If you have kids, God first, marriage second, then kids. I tell my kids that. I love you guys to love your mother more. You want mom more? Yeah, don't you want me to? Doesn't it make your life better if things are good with us? You know, God first, marriage second, then kids, and then the rest of life. And that's the deal, because where the love of God is, there is favor. Where love of Christ exists, there is godly favor. John says in First John four twenty, if someone says, "I love God," and hates his brother, he is a liar. Let's not mince words liar (laughs) liar you are a liar if you say you know I'm thinking of the scene Princess Bride have you seen the Princess Bride oh I just love that
1: movie
0: once you know uh, Miracle Max and his wife and he goes I don't think about Prince Humperdinck she comes running out liar liar (laughs) and that's what John says if you say I love God but you hate your brother you are a liar it's not true the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he does not see. So you cannot claim the love of God while being in a hatred situation. You see, how, these are really tied together tonight. Reconciliation, forgiveness, love. Loving God, loving each other. I, I've shared this before. I know I, I'll share it one, one more time. One of the wisest things I ever heard was from a pastor when I was in college. And he was preaching about marriage and talking about it. And he said, I had a couple come in Sit down in my op- Well, the, the husband came in and sat down in my office. The wife wasn't there. And he said, Pastor Lynn, I have a problem. You see, I don't love my wife anymore. I've just fallen out of love with her, which is the stupidest thing. Anybody, I've fallen out of love. With you. It's a decision, man. You didn't just fall out of love. You decided to fall out of love. And so he said, I've fallen out of, I don't, I just have no feelings for her, I have no, no passion for her, I don't love her anymore. And, and Lynn said, very simply, great, no problem, go home and love her.
1: <laughs>
0: and I'm sure the man said something like, I realize this counseling session is free, but I just told you I don't love her. Yeah, go home and love her. Husbands and wives, if you're struggling in your marriage, go home and love your spouse. doesn't matter if they're going to love you back. Maybe not right away. It may take years. But you, for your part, go love them. Decide to love them. And fall back into love with them. That's how it works. You make a choice. Love is a decision. And love always brings about the favor of God. Verse 23. The poor man utters supplications, but the rich man answers roughly. And Jesus saw this. In fact, I don't believe this was a parable. He said in Luke 18, verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector... And the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. In fact, I think he prayed it with some, with a real kind of haughty British accent. I, I just have this sense.
1: <laughs>
0: God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But Jesus said the tax collector standing some distance away was unwilling even to lift up his eyes to heaven. He was beating his breast saying, God, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Which one are you? Which one are you? When you pray, are you praying with pride? Or are you praying just for mercy? Are you praying in the place of thankfulness that God would even count you worthy to hear your prayers? And Jesus said, I tell you, the tax collector went home justified rather than the Pharisee, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself, humiliation, will be exalted, honor, the path to honor. And so the poor man utters supplications, the rich man answers roughly. Verse 24 is interesting. A man of too many friends comes to ruin, or literally is broken in pieces. It's nice to, to, to hear that literal translation because I, I, I always wondered about that. A man of too many friends comes to ruin. It seems like, don't you want as many friends as possible, especially on Facebook?
1: <laughs> Isn't that the
0: point? I've got 9,072 friends. I'm popular. No, you're not. You just will accept anybody. <laughs> it's really frustrating, Facebook. You know, I've got my paltry little, like, I don't know, handful of friends. I think I'm up to like seven. Cheryl's got like 900 I'm like what is the point of this you know (laughs) deleted (laughs) the Bible says a man of too many friends is broken in pieces what does that mean the idea is that you cannot befriend the entire world it will tear you apart in fact, taking it a step further, if you pay, play the role of the people pleaser, you're going to be torn up. You can't please everybody. You cannot. You are not capable of meeting everyone where they are. Paul said in Galatians 1.10, <clears throat> excuse me, he said, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul knew... That Jesus is the one friend above all others worth pursuing. Because, verse 24 goes on, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Who might that be? <laughs> He's talking about Jesus. He's got to be talking about Jesus.
1: Well,
0: what makes you say that? Jesus said, "...greater love has no one than this, Then He laid down His life for His friends." You are my friends, He says, if you do what I command you. Oh, so it's conditional? No. That's not what He's saying. You are my friends if you do what I command you. What does He command them to do? Love. He had just been talking about loving other people. You love like I've told you to love. You're my friends. This is what I'm looking for in a friend, Jesus says. And He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Compare that with verse 19. A brother offended. It's harder to be one than a strong city. Jesus is not like the brother offended. Please hear me on this. This is so important. The entire point of his death, the entire reason that he laid down his life for his friends was to eradicate the offense of the sin in your life and mine. Wow! He's a friend that sticks closer to a brother because he does not get offended. He does not take offense. He takes away offense. This is what He does. And for anyone who questions their salvation, Glenn and I were talking about this this morning. This is so powerful. Anyone who questions their salvation, here is the key to absolute security, to absolutely being sure every moment of every day that you are a saved person, that when you die or when He comes, you're going to heaven. Here's the key. You ready? If you focus your eyes on your part of the friendship, you will always question your salvation. Let me say that again. If you focus your eyes on your part of the friendship, you will always question your salvation because you will always wonder if you are good enough for the friendship. But, if you fix your eyes on Jesus, on His part of the friendship, there's no question but that you have been accepted and saved. Because He's the friend that does not take offense. Salvation is based on what He did, not what you do. And that's why the Bible tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I'm looking at Him. I don't have time to look at myself and go, ooh, ooh, ah, no salvation for me today. Now, the moment I look back at Jesus, I see Him smiling and going, what sin? What sin? I I wash that
1: away. What What are you worried about? Keep watching Jesus. Get your eyes off yourself.